Hey there, and thanks for tuning in. I've added this note to the beginning of my most recent and highest downloaded episodes to let you know of a few changes and hopefully avoid any confusion for you as listeners. You will hear me call the show Life After Business as well as reference various ventures I've been a part of over the years. When I started the show, I originally named it Life After Business because I was on a mission to learn everything I wish I would have known before we sold our family business back in 2014. And after 200 episodes and Tons of information that I've learned. I finally decided to change the name to better reflect me, the content, and the guests. One of the biggest lessons I've learned is business owners and entrepreneurs who were the happiest and most successful, in my mind, didn't focus only on sucking all the cash out of the company, and they knew the business was going to eventually continue on without them at some point in time. They literally knew exactly what they wanted from their business long term and why. They intentionally focused on building a valuable company so they could have the freedom of choices to do what they wanted from the business. So they focused on strategies that would grow value long term and give them the freedom to choose. You can learn more about the name change, my major lessons, and our definition of intentional growth in episode 200. Enjoy the episode that you're listening to right now, and thanks for being a listener. Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast that helps you understand how to increase the value of your business, what your company is worth, and what your exit options are. Host Ryan Tansom and his guests give you all the information you need to get clarity and control over your business and take pride in a valuable company that gives you freedom and choices to exit on your terms. Hey everybody and welcome back. This is episode 195 and I'm excited for today's episode because there's a lot of stuff going on right now and this is a super uplifting interview that I just got the warm and fuzzies from because we're going to be talking about people, culture, and what that means to your company and how to be balancing your culture and your employees with the financial situation that you might be dealing with. Because a huge challenge right now that I see business owners encountering is the decisions that need to be made about how to balance the interests of one's operations, the culture that you've built, and keeping that culture intact, keeping employees on board, making sure that you have a way to preserve everything that you've built, but then also how do you recalibrate that with some sort of new normal as we begin to figure that out and that normal meaning, what is your revenue and profits going to look like? And then how do you integrate your culture and your leadership into the strategic plan on how to grow value inside of this new normal? And I think that people are going to be one of the key factors of getting your company ahead and using your people and leadership and your culture as a competitive advantage. And there's no one better to talk about this than the guest that I've got on the show today. His name is Chris Maroff, and he has built a thriving laboratory of cutting edge ideas for company culture. He started in a family business, quit the family business to go off on his own. He grew that company. He ended up buying his parents' business back from them. He then got into private equity. He owns multiple businesses and he has over quadrupled his EBITDA by investing in his employees. So a few things that we're going to be talking about on the show today is how Chris quadrupled his EBITDA by focusing on his employees, how Chris scaled his companies using one major KPI, which is increasing his employees' median income, And then why Chris would give up millions of dollars instead of laying off 10% of his workforce. We'll be talking about how to harvest your employees' greatest gifts and nurture their inner greatness. And by abolishing the two things that can erode profits and employees' mental states. And Chris had a great definition of how do you quantify culture. He said that culture is the sum of everybody's worldviews inside your business. And he talks about how he's been able to quantify that and then 
actually make decisions about how to refine the collective worldview of the cultures that he's been working with, and then how to use that as a differentiator to grow your company and invest in your leaders. And Chris has got some very tangible stories and descriptions of how he's invested in his leaders to create this competitive advantage because he describes how leaders and executive leaders are the largest leverage point and bottleneck of any business. So by investing in your leaders, you're essentially gaining leverage across all your companies and all your customers. I like this episode a lot because we cannot forget that businesses are made up of employees and people. So not only do we have to treat our employees well, but how we treat them and what you're doing right now as a business owner and leader will impact the future viability of your business. And the leaders that are able to maintain the financial health of their business while also keeping their culture and leaders intact are going to come out of this with a competitive advantage that I don't think others are going to have. There's a couple of ways that we can help you as you get clarity into this subject. One is that we have built out a couple digital products in the last six weeks. We created one that's called Mastering Your Cash Flow video series. We have three big parts of this cash flow series. One is how to build your 13-week cash flow statement, a bunch of videos and downloadable templates on how to actually build that. The second part of it is how to build and revise your 2020-2021 budget and forecast from the ground up. So revising, making sure you've got the correct forecast and the correct target of net profit, EBITDA, and revenue as we get into this new norm. And then the third part of that is how to build a strategic plan to grow value value in the long term. So think about it kind of like get clear on all your numbers, get intentional, which is building that strategic plan. And that's what we're going to be talking about with Chris in this episode is prioritizing the right things to come out of this with intention. And then the third part is to get going, which is executing on that plan by integrating your financials and your strategies together. So that way you can be focused on value creation as this new norm comes into play. With that being said, I really hope you enjoy this episode with Chris Maroff. Sponsored by Arcona's Growth and Exit Boot Camps. Two days jam-packed with material on the five growth and exit principles and the world of mergers and acquisitions. You'll walk away knowing exactly what steps to take to get your target valuation and your best exit option. Two days at Arcona's Boot Camp will give you the clarity to control the rest of your journey as an entrepreneur. Chris, how are you doing? I am great, Ryan. We are both cooped up, uh, opposite ends of the U.S., but uh, same situation going on as everybody's dealing with. And I'm looking forward to today's show because I think leadership is always important. In today's world, it's more important than ever, especially as people are dispersed, dealing with you know chaotic issues. And uh, I just think it's important. So I think it's uh, going to be a fun episode because I think people need it, honestly. So why don't you, for the listeners that are not familiar with you and your background, kind of just give us a little bit of a cliff note version of how, what you, what you, how you started the business and then what you're doing today and kind of the whole um, alignment leadership and what you guys are all about. Absolutely. So yeah, my parents and I started a company back in 1995. And so leadership was, you know, at 22 years old, it was, a, it was not even a concept uh, on my mind. It was just surviving a uh, startup with my parents uh, as your as my boss, uh, which always <laughs> makes for an interesting uh, scenario. Um, but that uh, business grew uh, pretty rapidly. Uh, fast forward about fifteen years, um, I was the CEO of that company uh, as my parents were nearing retirement, and decided to uh, move my family away from all of our friends and family uh, from the Boston area down to Austin, Texas to start out on my own 
you know, it's always that uh, feeling over the kind of looking over your shoulder uh, when you start in a family business, at least for me, it was feeling like I, I really could accomplish something on my own. And so that was the reason for the big move. A lot of... Did you quit the business when you moved? I did. Okay. I did. Uh, I, I walked away from that. And um, a few years earlier, I'd actually started, tried to start a company in Texas doing similar uh, work that we were doing. And, and we work in the K-12 industry. So we work consulting with school districts. So I was uh, I tried here in Texas to start that same kind of company a few years earlier with starts and stops, but decided to jump out on my own in 2011. And that's when I moved to Austin, Texas with six employees. Fast forward um, about eight years now, and uh, we have about uh, 200 employees um, in that company. Uh, we work uh, with um, about 700 school districts all over the state of Texas. Uh, and then a year and a half ago, decided to let my parents finally retire. And so I bought their business from them as well. No. So we have, yeah, <laughs> That's so we, awesome. have, we have work in, uh, in New England uh, and Texas. We're spread out uh, across the country. And then about a year ago, decided I wanted to become, I wanted to grow up and do my grow up, grown up uh, job. And so pivoted um, from the K-12 industry into private equity and now uh, own and operate about 12 businesses, uh, most of which are right here in Austin, Texas. So many questions about this entire journey, Chris. It's ridiculous. <laughs> yes, um, yes. Uh, so yeah, so many, so many, so many. Um, okay, let's take them in bite-sized chunks. So why, like, what were the, what was the dialogue going on with your folks that you decided to quit and move? Because I, you know, I worked in a family yeah. business as well. So you know, <laughs> for you to go back and buy them, I, I love how you know there's the circle of life, and I'm just saying that because I'm watching so much Lion King with my kids being at home. <laughs> <laughs> a lot right now. So um, yep. yours was a different kind of circle. So what, how, what was going on there that, that led you yeah. to, to get out? Well, um, you know, I tell the story now and it's thankfully at a, a, a you know, with good retrospect, I've, I've been able to process through what happened nine years ago, but, you know, basically I'm, I'm coming into my own as a leader, uh, as a CEO. And I, I just happen to be a person with a really a growth mentality of, of from an entrepreneurial perspective, my goal as an entrepreneur is to solve problems by employing people. And that kind of circles back to this concept of really having a growth mentality. My parents were nearing the end of their careers and wanting to wind down. And so that just created a lot of friction. So when you talk about dialogue, I have to admit, it wasn't a lot of healthy dialogue toward the end mm -hmm. um, because, you know, they're wanting to take the company in one direction. I'm, I'm wanting to take it in a very different direction. And so it led us to the conclusion that we should probably part ways uh, in order for us to kind of live out who we need to be at that moment. How big was their company at that point? We had about 60 employees. So did they have a different like backup plan, you know, for, for you guys or? You know, they wanted to step back in. They were going to step back in and they did as the CEOs, kind of a co-directorship of that company uh, when I uh, departed. But to make matters more complicated, I also have two brothers who also work in the business. <laughs> and um, I'm the... Uh, I'm the middle child. My oldest brother, of course, growing up, um, never did anything wrong uh, or always did the right thing, I say. And then my younger brother was the baby. So he, he, no matter what he did, never did anything wrong. And then there was me who did everything uh, the hard way, it seemed like. Um, and so with, when we had board meetings, um, there were four opinions and then nine. Uh, and, they, and they were never the same. Um, and so I knew it was a, about time that I needed to either get in line with what they were wanting or, or kind of, uh, uh, you know, march out on my own. 
I mean, we know how that went. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and it's yeah. really interesting because like, um, one of the biggest concepts, Chris, that we teach in our intentional growth bootcamp is the difference between ownership and management roles. And yeah. the biggest cha- challenge that family businesses have are partnerships where it's like, hey, we all own a force. So we're going to all get paid a hundred grand, right? And we're going to equalize right. everything with ownership, with, uh, with management roles, instead of saying, this is an asset and we need to separate the asset and this is how it's valued versus actually working roles. And if it's too many times, it just all gets coagulated together. And that's what so many, so many complications have. It does. It gets really messy um, really quickly, especially when the mentality of my parents, which I can, I don't blame them. And they weren't wrong for thinking this way. It's just different thinking. I'm an entrepreneur. So for me, it's not about the ownership of the company. Uh, it's about the growth of the company. Whereas I think a lot of people love the idea of owning a business. In fact, I call them professional hobbyists. It's a lifestyle business. And really what it's designed to do is provide income. Whereas totally. um, my brand of entrepreneurship is really about growing something in order to sell something. And so that's really ultimately how I pivoted into private equity. So, yeah, I mean, our stories, I, I just love it. So you, look, look, I'm, we can go by the timeline. There's a couple of different ways that I think because my curiosity will just go along a timeline. But then also yeah. we've got your main concepts of what you're doing um, with your with your alignment leadership. And, you know, so I'm just kind of curious, maybe, you know, give us some of the, the, the guts of you started your business, you grew it enough. I mean, now you got 200 employees, right? And then you bought right. your parents' business. So where, maybe we start with this, Chris, how did you start thinking about value creation? Because there's this mindset yeah. shift that I'm, I, I really like to tap into where yeah. people shift out of this uh, hobbyist or like, and I, and I have people that I know, Chris, that have $20 million jobs, right? Where they, they focus on top line revenue and net profit and they only look at their P&L, have no idea what it's worth and how to grow value. Yeah. And it's just maximizing K1. And I think that those individuals and companies are probably struggling a lot these days when cash yeah. dried up like that. Yeah. Where did that happen for you and how did you do that? Yeah, it was, um, thankfully, when I moved to Austin, I immediately um, got plugged in to a faith community here through a church. One of the first person, one of the first people I met, he owned his own business um, in private equity. Um, and, you know, we, I, we had a conversation and I'm, I'm so green in, in, in owning a business and running a business. I was just in awe of this guy. I was just, uh, you know, really fan really fanboying over what he was able to do. You know, this guy uh, came out of college, worked for IBM for several years at 29, decided to launch out, created his own company. And at 33, sold it for about $40 million. <laughs> and so, you know, immediately I, I tried to connect myself to his way of thinking. And so really being a learner was a big part of it for me. I, I'm just not naturally a humble learner. I hate to say that about myself, but I tend to uh, be an experiential learner. And so therefore, if I have an experience that I have a hard time believing in something, but the way this guy really presented himself and the way that he looked at business, I, I looked at it as the way uh, to look at business. And so that's when my mind, my mindset really shifted towards this building of value um, awesome. in something. Yeah. So, okay. I, lo- I love it because it, it is my way of describing that, Chris, when that happens, because I went through that when, you know, unfortunately I went through that after the exit, which a lot of the people that I'm on my podcast go, Oh shit, I wish I would have <laughs> known that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. As I'm getting raked across the coals from a private equity firm that's talking about weighted average cost of capital and due diligence. That's right. and, <laughs> and, yep. and, but the, 
you know, when you when you have that, it's almost like going from two dimensional to three dimensional thinking. Yeah. You know, you it just you li- like the conversations that a lot of entrepreneurs have. You start to realize are kind of irrelevant. And how, yeah. so, how did you take that into putting that into practice? Like how you were investing in the business and tying that to a long term strategy. What what did you do to make that actionable? Yeah, it, for me, the biggest actionable item has been to remove um, our central leadership um, and create expendability amongst ourselves. And so that our intellectual property wasn't in our leadership team, but it was in the philosophy of business. And so what, what I had to do is I had to become irrelevant to the business. Um, and when I did that, um, I started to develop a leadership philosophy um, around alignment leadership that allowed all of us as the, the executive leadership team of this K-12 business to be expendable, um, that we weren't necessary. And then what that did is it allowed us to really uh, really identify and then grow leaders at an amazing rate. And that mm-hmm. is, to me, the way that I quantify growth and quantify value. So our EBITDA, you know, four years ago when I started this journey of, of really the, the first inklings that we were going to move into private equity, and now four years later, our EBITDA has more than quadrupled. So you would think it'd be the other way. You know, you'd think you'd have to kind of take some time to build that up. But what happened, it really accelerated the growth and leadership in everyone in the organization in a way uh, that created an amazing um, platform for us to even start shopping uh, that business today. So amazing. I, and, and by the way, your EBITDA quadruple, I'm assuming your multiple <laughs> did something very similar. Very similar. And and the reality is if, if, a, if a business owner could really understand, you know, I want my, we talk about this all the time. I want my median income of, my, of every single employee. I want it to be as high as it possibly can. And because what happens is then, like you said, everything else is a factor from that number. But what a lot of businesses do, a lot of what I call lifestyle businesses is they focus on the K1 and what they're doing is they're forcing the K1. Whereas I've been able to experience multiples of growth, compounding growth by it's focusing instead. Growth. I mean like literally that's yes. Pretty, yes. That's that. right. And so, so what I do is I focus on raising the salary of all of my employees uh, that medium salary as high as I can because I know that at the end of that my multiples will be a factor. That's really interesting. Um, and it's, it's, I experienced something probably on a micro scale of that, Chris, when we were turning the business or my family business around. Cause so it was ended up being a turnaround for the first five, six years before we started hitting our stride. And then we sold it to a strategic yeah. competitor that took away most of it. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's why I didn't yeah. want to do them. But the, uh, I, when you experience that leadership, it's like the theory of constraints where it just goes poof, and you're That's one, right. It just like, it's amazing what your executive team can do with yeah. that leadership. So how are you doing that? Like, and then what is, yeah, I mean, you've kind of packaged it up, right? So like, what, like, how we can you have, do this? Yeah. So what we did is we really started to figure, first of all, my journey has been, I grew up in New England as a, you know, I call it typical New England. We, we you know, we're not uh, feelings oriented as men. And so <laughs> I, I don't, I don't have any um, background on this empathy um, game, but man, about four years ago, I was really challenged to figure out what was more important. What was the most important thing when I walked in the door at work? Um, and the, the journey I've been on is that it really has been people. And so this idea of, of um, a really aligning with my people, alignment leadership has really been to value people for who they are and not what they can do. And what's happened is it really just unleashes them 
to do things that previously they nor I were just aware of exactly how powerful they were. We call it kind of recognizing people's greatness. And that greatness is really seen through the application of their intrinsic value. They have value because they're human beings. It's my job to find that value. And we, we, do, we define that value based primarily on two things. One is soft skills. And so we spend a lot of time talking about uh, soft skills, um, kindness, compassion, uh, determination, dedication. There are hundreds of them. Find that soft skill. Find those soft skills uh, in your people. The other part of value is really about their passions. What are they interested in? And so what we do is we spend a lot of time really discovering the value of our people, and then we get to unleash it. We call that recognizing their greatness. And when we see their greatness, we see them for who they are. It it has been amazing to watch people evolve into the very person that we've imagined them to be uh, from the moment we hired them. It's been really exciting. So it's really cool to hear you say that because... When I'm thinking about the one time that I, I kind of knew this because I was always in you know basic leadership you know roles throughout my growing up and like when I was in the business and we were juggling cash flow and really hard times kind of like we are at right now. I mean we yeah. were juggling a quarter million dollar payroll every two weeks. We'd hit it and then we go okay we hit it <laughs> and uh, yep. as we'd hired these good people that were in the trenches with us it just, you really got to see the people. Cause it wasn't like us making so much money up at top. And you know, there was like this, you are peasants. We are, it was just kind of like, everybody's got to help fix this. Otherwise we can't keep doing right. it. And I was in this spot, Chris, where I looked at my CIO who we were building out the managed IT services and he would literally, I mean, this guy was making a lot of money. He came over there because of our vision and our culture. And then he would like literally go crawl through closets with cabling. And I'm like, you're so awesome. Like he just yeah. selfless to the, to the point where it was amazing. I sat him down. I'm like, I'm like, what, as a younger person at that point, I, I immediately thought how to reward him was by giving him cash. Right. Right. He's like, Ryan, I just want some extra PTO because I love four wheel. It was like these big Jeep ATVing. <laughs> and I'm just like, and it was this, is this spot, Chris, where I said it was like, just because of how well I got to know him and just respecting who he was, that it was just like, Oh, I mean, to this day, he's still a great friend. Yeah. And how, how, like, is that, I mean, that's kind of what it sounds like. You're just dialing into the people and it that's just, right. yeah, we're, we're trying to abolish or get rid of two things that really ruin people's careers. They ruin their experience with career. Um, you know, I'm at an age now where I'm, I'm in my upper forties and I'm thinking to myself, man, I don't want to get to the end of my working days and regret the time I spent. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to get rid of regret. Um, we, so we reverse that and we call it fulfillment. The whole goal is that people look back over the time spent at work away from family, away from friends, and they don't look at it as a waste of time. Awesome. I love the fact that I, I don't feel like I have to work a day in my life. I, I get to go in go to war with people that I absolutely love. Um, and it's not even dependent on the thing that I'm doing. It's really dependent on the, on, on who I'm doing it with. Totally. And so we really want to get rid of regret. We, we want people, we want our employees to feel like this is fulfilling, man. I, I, I worked my butt off this week. I worked hard. I dug a ditch, but you know what? At the end of the week, I, I it was the right ditch to dig. And I was in there with my friends and it that's was awesome. worth the effort. So that's one thing we're trying to get rid of. The other one, from a leadership perspective, which always plagues us, is loneliness and isolation. And anybody who's been in leadership understands when you have to make a final decision, decision-making alienates people. 
Um, everybody wants to criticize the decision that you're making. Um, I hate the concept that somebody wants to question my motives. If people want to question my methodology, absolutely. It's all on the table. We'll all fight for the best idea. Yep. But I hate when people question my motivation. Um, that's very hurtful to me. And so um, we want to get rid of loneliness and isolation for leaders as well. So that's really what alignment leadership is there to do. It's really to create fulfillment, but we do that through authentic community. And so our goal is to make sure we don't feel like we're wasting our time. We're going to regret that time. And we certainly don't want to feel like we're in it alone. That's awesome. Honestly, that is awesome. And you know, what's interesting after a few hundred podcasts that I've been doing with entrepreneurs that have made insane amounts of money and selling and wishing they would have done things differently and kept a lot of the stuff that you're talking about. And I know that you've, you, uh, you've had Jay, that Jay from uh, Lost of Software in your world, he's been on my podcast. And then yes. uh, Bob Buford, he hasn't been on the show, but a lot of halftime people, all from Dennis who introduced us. And there's a lot of this purpose behind this capitalism, yeah. right? Conscious capitalism. Yep. And, and uh, I've learned a lot. And I, you know, and I've said, Chris, that it boils down to two questions that someone should answer and ask themselves every single morning is one, because, you know, these people have the reason that behind it before I give you the two is that people have made all this money and they're still upset. And they're still miserable. Yes, and I exactly. say, answer two questions every morning. One is, what are the most interesting problems that I can help solve? And two, who do I want to do that with? Yeah. Because if you don't have both, then it's pointless. Yeah. Over 70% of the people right now in the US hate their job or hate who they do it with. Horrible. That is one of the saddest statistics ever. Right. And yet at the same time, businesses and business owners, man, we don't, we just don't listen well. We, we want to blame it on like millennials. We want to blame it on Gen Z. Here's the reality. We've never had turnover numbers like we have right now in the U.S. ever. In a hundred years of the industrialized age, we've never had turnover. And so instead of blaming generations, how about we as owners understand, let's solve these problems. Let's, let's create workplace environments like you did for the CIO. The, you, their, people will take less money to do harder work if you can make it fulfilling and you can eliminate loneliness while they're doing it. Isn't it interesting, Chris, like when you get it, you just get it. And when you don't, you just don't. And, and this is going to tie, I'm going to, I'm going to loop this into your PE world right now. Cause I'm heavily involved in this, all this world that you're talking about too. And I, for the last three, four years, when I, as I've been really involved in this space of M&A and this podcast, I kind of just go, cause I have your philosophy too. Yet then there's like, when you understand this world, it's amazing how much money you could make without yes. having a soul. And I, I, I like, I've just kind of just been like, what in the heck, man? Like, just because you understand, understand debt and equity and whack and all this stuff yeah. that you can just go in there. And I'm watching these, I've watched these PE firms go up there and just because they're spreadsheet junkies know how to do this and realize now that like, it's, different, right? Because all the leverage yeah. that they've been using and the whole thing relies on people. I'm just like, I don't understand. Like at the end of the day, when now they're, now we have a lot of hard problems. How many right. people are, how, how are your numbers going to be when you realize that all the people that you might've churned and burned are going to be right. the ones that are going to have to be there for you? That's <laughs> it's right. Just, it's crazy. And you know, like I said, a hundred years ago, back in the day when you're doing manufacturing or agriculture, Yes, it makes sense to be an expert in manufacturing and agriculture, and people were plug and play. That mm -hmm. makes sense. 100 years later, no, it is all about people. Mm -hmm. and nobody, you know, information and knowledge, it's a commodity now. Anybody totally. can look up anything. What, what's going to get you ahead are people. In fact, being in private equity now, 
I love watching companies um, who even make um, crazy cash um, as we're looking at them. And yet I look at how they are holding back their people. They still have their people leashed. And I think, you know what? These multiples that they're talking about, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create a tenfold on what they're doing because what we've seen in our company is, yes, we have about 200 employees now, but the growth of our business, so we went from six to 200, but the trajectory of those six, if we didn't learn this lesson, we'd be at, we'd be at close to 600 employees. But what we did is we figured out how to unleash our people in a way that kept the numbers down. And now you want to talk about crazy cash. Oh, what yeah. we're doing is we're leveraging our people in ways that they've never been leveraged before. Jack Welch um, had a story that he told years and years ago um, where he had to shut down as, as a CEO of GE, he had to go shut down a, uh, an HVAC company. I, I believe it was in Minnesota, but he had to go shut one down. And he goes out there to let the 60 employees know he was sorry, but the work was drying up. And there was a, an older gentleman in the back who raised his hand at the end of Jack's speech. And he said, Jack, you know what? It's been sad. He says, for 40 years, you've had my hands, but you've never had my head. I've never engaged in this work. You've never unleashed me in a way that would make this company be successful and profitable. And I think most companies, unfortunately, are run that way. It is crazy. And you know what? I just... Uh, uh... I was listening to um, how I built this and the owner or the creator of Shopify. And it's, I think he's German or whatever it was just listening to this guy who's literally worth a fortune. And yep. he's so matter of fact, and Chris, he says, I didn't really want to work for the big man because they had, they told me how to dress. And I'm like, if you don't think I'm grown up enough to figure out how to dress, then, uh, uh, and I just love it. Cause it's like, it's so true. Like who yeah. says you can't tell adults, like how to, I mean, first of all, you're missing some serious fundamentals if they, if you haven't taught them how to do that <laughs> right. and be respectful of who's in yeah. front of you, but you're going back to the PE space. And I want to tie this, I want to, before I forget, I want to make sure that we, I want to go back and figure out how you bought your parents' business, but then also your philosophy for, for private equity. I think there's a new space for this. And do you know, Sonny Vanderbeck from Satori Capital or uh, Brent Bishore from uh, uh, Now Permanent Equity? I don't know the the latter. Uh, he, he very similar philosophy. Brought in the same age, okay. conscious capitalism. You know, you know, being able to leverage the private equity models, but then also be able to do it with soul and for the people. Yes. And um, but I, you know, I'm watching these private equity firms right now, Chris, who have just gobbled up companies. Mm-hmm. And like, I know that a couple in, in mine right now where they can't buy paper clips. They've got so much debt. You know, they got <laughs> thousands of employees, yeah. and there's just no way that this works out when you have 30% dip in revenue and you're right. just like, how in God's name is this going to work out? And they took the money from someone else and just, right. what's your, can you just give me your thoughts? Cause on the PE space in general, based on what I just said, cause there's good people like yourself, but then there's the, yeah. the general bell curve and then there's the out, outliers. So what, what are your kind of thoughts right now? <laughs> so, you know, this is a, uh, it's, it's so, it sounds so stupid. I hate even saying it, but, um, it goes back to my, when I was uh, 20, 20 years old and selling used cars, same slogan that was true then, 26 years later is true now, cash is king. And the, the reality is debt mortgages the future. And it really limits your ability uh, to get creative. You know, we're, when this whole thing, this whole coronavirus thing 
happen. Of course, it impacts us. It impacts uh, all of our organizations, uh, like everyone. But man, I'm so thankful I learned lessons younger around the flexibility that cl- that cash gives you. So, you know, with all of this happening, yeah, I'm so thankful that we've not had to, we've had no layoffs. Uh, we've had no furloughs. Uh, we've been able to keep everyone uh, and the organizations going. Um, and that is due to the fact that we've put ourselves in a cash position um, to do that. You know, we'll lose in one of our ventures alone, we're going to lose about $3 million of revenue this year. And that's a big hit, obviously, uh, to the organization. Um, but we've been able to come up with a way, a system by which we can pivot to not only make some of that back up, but then also to survive. Um, and that's really what this is about. I I would rather take a $3 million hit than have to lose 10% of my workforce because that 10% will make that $3 million back within 12 months. So, I, so it's the short-sightedness to think, well, I'm just going to lay people off and maybe I'll be able to hire them back. To me, it's doubling down on your people in a way that will give you the best chance of making your money back. And so, yeah, that's our goal right now is, is we're trying to do everything we can to keep everyone employed in a way that will let us bounce back faster than anybody else. Well, and, and I wanted to pull that thread too, because I can only imagine when I think about like the hard times that I've navigated and if you've got the ability to withstand the blow financially right. then and then protecting your employees, how yeah. many creative ideas are going to come out of your employees that are not scared? Right. They're not trying to like, you know, I mean, I think about just, just the pure openness and the, yeah. the camaraderie compared to someone that's going to lie to keep their job. I literally actually just a small story. <laughs> and then I want to hear your, your thoughts is I got off the phone with this doctor for my sinus infection. Of course I got a sinus infection when everybody else is going got yeah. COVID. Right? <laughs> and I'm like, no, literally it's just a sinus infection. She, she was telling me that there was an employer that is comping people an extra dollar amount to stay at work and put people in harm's way because of their balance sheet. And it's just like, and, yeah. and, you know, everybody knows it, right? We're all adults. So everybody knows that's wrong. And right. it just shows versus like taking someone like yourself and saying, okay, everybody, let's figure out how to pivot. And knowing yeah. that people are safe. Is there any examples that you have of like, you know, kind of the magic that happens there? Yeah, we had a great example recently where, so one of the, um, one of the ventures I own, it's a hospitality company and the hospitality company, we operate restaurants. So obviously oh we've taken a big, Uh, you know, punch to the gut here. But what we did is we, one of the things that got me into this is I bought a catering business about a year and a half ago. And, you know, uh, the creativity that we've had with the catering business is that's what pivoted us into the the restaurant business. Well, guess what? We're back to the catering mentality where we can still do delivery and we can still do pickup service. And so we have a commercial kitchen in downtown Austin. And um, we pivoted into this concept of it's basically ghost pizza is, is the mentality. It's, so pizza delivery with no brick and mortar. And so um, we pivoted big time. Well, that, that's literally kept every employee of that hospitality company employed. Oh, cool. um, and so um, to make matters worse, one of the guys that we had running uh, down in that kitchen got sick, had a cold. Um, but, you know, like everything at the time, you couldn't really test to make sure it wasn't mm-hmm. uh, the coronavirus. So we told him to stay home. Uh, his roommate also worked um, in the hospitality company and, and actually ran delivery for us. And so we said, well, listen, uh, you know, we don't know what your roommate has and we don't want to treat you. You know, I know your roommates, but you also work together and you work in our kitchen and we've got to be really careful with other clients. So we want you to stay home as well. But, but we're going to go ahead and pay both of you for the next two weeks. 
um, to make sure that you're safe, that our clients are safe, that our employees are safe in the kitchen. And I, I got an email from him um, the other day, and he was just saying, I, I can't believe you let me do this. You let me stay home. I, you're still paying me. And he came up with a list of about eight things, eight ideas that he was willing, he could, couldn't wait get, to get back there to jump in and to go for it uh, for me um, and for his coworkers. So I'm, I'm telling you, if you can unleash these people in a way, it, it will change the way business is done, but you got to believe in them first. I, that's Awesome. I get the goosebumps here and that because I mean, you, you're it, times like now have to have good leadership like that because I mean, people deserve it. Like you said, I mean, honestly, like for it, waking up and having to go through work every day, like you said, and enjoying this and, and people like I, the human nature is someone wants to feel like that, right? Like who wouldn't want to yes. come up with eight ideas for their employer because you're That's all right. part of it together. I mean, versus sitting at home crabby and in, in spite, yep. can't wait to get better. Can't wait till the coronavirus disappears so I can quit and go somewhere else. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> like, like, I mean, they're going to do everything just to yeah. keep employed, which means there's no, no ideas, none of this stuff. So you're still paying them and they're doing right. the least amount of work possible and everybody's upset. I mean, there's just... That's right the productivity that's not harvested because of it is ridiculous. Yeah. And we don't have the luxury here we're in Austin. We, we're in such a deep competition for talent in, in general anyway, you know, Google and Apple and others. And so, you know, it's constant for us to, to figure out how we're going to keep our competitive advantage across all of our industry, all of our ventures. And it's always back to people. And so they are worth whatever expense, but that's what, that's what I keep going back to. We can afford to do it. Thank goodness we can afford to do it. Um, and we, we count ourselves very blessed to be able to do that. Um, but it goes back to that philosophy that every company should have, which is that cash is king. If you want to go out and do you know, crazy, amazing things with your business, build up your own cash reserve, you know, borrowing money, it just unfortunately, in these scenarios, it makes it really difficult to honor your people the way they deserve to be honored. So... Well, a couple of things on how to create that kind of culture, right? I mean, like, how, cause it's one thing to like, I'm thinking about, like, I've never systematized it. Cause I mean, I haven't had the family business for a handful of years now. And like, it was a lot of me. I was like the culture guy and we didn't have any, yeah. like, you know, prescription values and stuff like that, which I think we could have gone one step further and probably created right. that. But like, so two questions. One is how do you create it? And the other one is I'm curious on the financial incentives. And the reason sure. I'm asking this, Chris, is are you familiar with Jack Stack, the great game of business? He's been, he's been on my podcast and my partner did an ESOP. So there's a lot of, okay. I, I'm very familiar. I like private equity and ESOPs and there's a bunch of stuff here where like, how do you align, how do you create the culture and systematize it? Sure. With or without ownership, right? Because I think the financial incentives yep. have to come there. Because mm-hmm. you can't, I mean, you can have a great culture, but sitting there staring at the people up top who make a, you know, cash is king or making, you know, rolling, right. you know, Doug, uh, Scrooge McDuck, you know, how do you align that, all that stuff together? Yeah, it's a great question. The, the reality for me is like the systemizing of it was a, it was more out of just my own frustration. So year for years, I read, I'm a big reader and I love, I loved reading these books around cultural leadership and so on, but nobody ever takes the time to really gives you the the tangibles about what how do you create a culture like what is this thing mm-hmm. um, everybody wants a good one right everybody says well I, I hope my culture is good I want my culture to be a good one but I, I never read a book that really helped me understand how to create one or how to recognize what I had and then how to shift it or cultivate it so what we did is we really I came up with this mentality well 
a culture is really the collection of, of your people's worldviews. You know, when we walk into a room and we have a conversation, there are potential um, conflict points um, around every corner. You know, whether I'm a Republican or a Democrat, whatever conversation is coming up, there's a reality that there's a potential point of conflict. And it's always because you have different worldviews. And the worldviews are a set of traits that we have that make up that worldview. So for instance, like my hopes, my preferences, my traditions, my experiences, and my beliefs. Those, those traits make up my worldview. It, it informs every conversation I'm in. So when I show up to a conversation, my experience with this, my traditions, what have been my preferences, what are my hopes, most importantly, beliefs. Beliefs are the most powerful worldview trait that we own. In fact, it's the one I always say that always leads to war. And so the conflict that comes with a belief system that we have, that really is the definition of our culture. So anytime mm. you have more than one person in a room, you have a culture. It's not about creating one. You have one. <laughs> you just need to define it. What yeah. is that culture? And, it, and we define it as the sum of everyone's worldviews. Then what we do to cultivate it is we say, okay, it's not good enough to understand what the culture is here. We now need, we want to cultivate it toward the kind of culture, toward a culture that we want. And since I'm the owner, what I want for the culture of my businesses matters more because I have to be willing to pay for or fund the organization. And so what we do is we create a purpose for each of the organizations. And purpose is so much better of a term to me than mission statement. Oh my gosh. Yeah. To have integrity and yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Who doesn't? So a purpose statement, I say, always has to have a give before the get. There has to be, I'm from, uh, from Austin here. And so we, we were, we refer to the Alamo quite a bit, but you know, in the Alamo, the, the leader, the night before he got, they got invaded, he drew a line in the sand. And that's where that phrase actually comes from a line in the sand. And he said, if you want to save Texas, step over the line, but what it'll cost you is your life. So we create purposes that have a give and have a get. And they're not just, hey, let's feed the world or let's save Texas. It's not, it's, you have to identify what they'll be giving up in order to get that. And so our purpose um, statement or a purpose that we live under has to give us real, real good description of the destination of where we're going. Um, And so the cultivation of the, of the culture now we leverage that purpose to tell us what to do every day. So if you know your destination really well, then you should know what to do tomorrow to get there. And so that's what we, we really identify that as prioritizing our most precious commodity on this earth, which is time. Most people don't yeah. prioritize their time. And that's because they don't have a clear destination. They don't have a clear purpose for their organization that informs everyone in the organization what to do and my good friend, I wish he was my good friend, what his words are is what's the next thing you do. And that's from Gary Keller's book, The One Thing. So that is the most important thing to do is the next thing. So can you give me uh, an example of a purpose statement for a company that one of maybe yeah, one of so, your companies? Yeah. So one of our companies, again, is a K-12 and we work with special education. Specifically, we work to get them back dollars from the federal government to help pay for services to students with disabilities. So what we came up with is we want to maximize educational documentation so that we can help discover and develop students. 
So the give is that we have to collect this documentation. Why? Because we all want to discover and develop students. See, the purpose could have been we want to really help discover and develop students, but you haven't identified what the hardship will be, what is the hard work that's involved, and that is we have to go get this documentation. And that's hard. Anybody who's worked in the educational realm understands it's really, really difficult to to get data into your hands in order to make the best decisions for kiddos. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's, that's the call to action. So how about the financial piece of this? Because I think that's amazing. Because you, you, I mean, the, between the beliefs, the, per, the, the, the purpose statement, I, I absolutely get it and I love it. And so how then do tie financials into this? I mean, obviously you're rewarding yeah. them with high salaries and stuff like that. Is there other ways besides, because you're in, in private equity, they're not an, e, it's not an ESOP, right? So there's no ownership or anything like that. So is there ways to financially tie this to, together with people as well? There are, but I think that goes to the kind of one of the concepts we talk about is that we really want to find out what does motivate your people. Right. For some, it is money. Others, it isn't. Yep. And so what we do is we sit down and we figure out with them, what does success look like? If success, because for some people, they'll give up short-term money for long-term ownership. So we we look at it in multiple different um, avenues. Some some really want responsibility. Some want the financially being tied in with the business. Some want higher pay. What we do is we really discover with them what they're looking for. What are, how do they define success going forward? And then we create a path for them to get there. I totally agree with that. So then when you think about one of the challenges that I've seen, Chris, that a lot of stories have come from on my podcast of people that have been upset afterwards is this, the business becomes their identity. So all the stuff that you're talking about, I mean, I just watching you, you obviously we're in video here for the listeners is, you know, the business becomes a derivative of you, all the decisions. I mean, like, like a lot of these things, this is an ecosystem of Chris, right? I mean, like, and who you are. What happens is I see that people go to sell the business and it's the big dollar amount, right? And so this comes, yes. if you're probably the people that are selling to you, one of the things in our intentional growth bootcamp is really understanding their personal drivers. So that's the principle number one and aligning that and being able to have a, a decision make mechanism to say, okay, here's how much it would be to sell to Chris versus XYZ private equity firm that's going to load it with debt, not care about my employees, et cetera. But right. I... And, I'm, and again, I'm generalizing there, but the, the, I think the challenge is for a lot of these sellers to say, okay, what is important to you and your business and how to align that with someone else? Because they probably haven't, a lot of people haven't become aware of this stuff that they're talking about. So how do you, you know, what I'm, I, when, you're, when you're sitting across from the, the seller, how do you get them to, to, to talk about that stuff instead of the, just the dollar amount? <laughs> yeah, and everything that we've done to date has been... Um... I don't know how to say, you know, the conversation we've had with owners, I'm thankful in one sense that they're not really thinking along those lines. Most of the folks that we've had conversations with are um, uh, family businesses that grew beyond their capabilities. And so what happens in those scenarios, because it's been a lifestyle business for so long, they're not even contemplating those kinds of of concepts. So what we we really focus on is we've really focused on when we when we talk about valuation, we talk about um, coming up with a bid or a number that makes sense to them. We really find out from them what their what their exit strategy is, like wh- what really motivates them, and mm-hmm. then we create for them, in, in at least in our opinion, 
um, a picture of what that could look like. Uh, what we, if somebody were to come and, and talk to me about one of my businesses, I know that one of the things that we've talked about is a, with our managing partners is, okay, wh- what are the things, what are the non-negotiables that we would say? Well, a lot of that has to do with the people involved. And so, yeah, we want factors of EBITDA, we, all those things. Absolutely. We're not, you know, we want to maximize those dollars. But what has informed that is conversation with key executives within the business to say to them, what will, what do you want? Do you want a three-year contract with the, with the buyer? Do you want a consulting arrangement with them? Do you want to follow us? So we've sold a business. We've lived out our 12-month obligation of that CEO. And then I, I turned around and hired them 12 months later to help me run another business. We've done all of those things in a way that hopefully lines up and, and kind of speaks to the imagination of our people. I just have yet to find a business that we've been in the process of negotiating with who have also had that same uh, mentality. It's very singular focused on the amount of cash they can take out of that business. Yep. It's so true, isn't it? And it takes that shift of mindset to understand like how all this works. So I'm curious, how did you do that with your parents? (laughs) (laughs) Probably the hardest. uh, I, (laughs) I will say it was the same process in that, you know, I just said, well, what do you guys want? Um, and then what I did is I, I worked backwards from there with the numbers to make sure that I wouldn't be stupid for doing it. You know, <laughs> it, I want the world for them and they deserve it. You know, these guys gave, you know, my mom, especially, and and she worked in public education for her entire career until we started our business together. And, you know, she would still consider herself a recovering principal. <laughs> uh, high school principal. And so I wanted the world for them. And I, I was willing to, to pay more as long as it made sense in, in what we could do for that business and, and kind of flipping that. And, and so the questions were the same, like, guys, what do you want? What do you want out of this? Most people on this planet don't talk about the things they should actually talk about. Most people talk around the things that they need to be explicit on. And so anybody who's negotiated with me uh, anybody who is listening to this who has negotiated with me will know I like to just talk about the elephant in the room uh, more than anything else. Uh, it's my favorite conversation point because it, it's what get it's what gets business done faster and more effectively is when we just talk about it. So anybody, I've had companies call me or, or private equity firms call me about some of my ventures, and you know they're wanting to dance around things. I'm like, here's the deal, guys. I'm not going to waste your time. Here's what I'm looking for. And now you get to figure out, like, is this something that you want to do? But yeah, shoot straight and, you know, put your cards on the table as it relates to what exactly do you want, either as the buyer or the seller. Do your brothers still work for you? They do not. They, <laughs> they, uh, so the, the company kind of split. Uh, I bought a portion of it. So it was all over New England. And so I bought the New Hampshire-based business. My brothers kept operating and still operate the, the, the business that's based in the state of Maine. Uh, that's awesome. So when you're, you know, given the time that we're in right now, and I think that, you know, I don't know, maybe you could two parts to this question. One is that what is your overall opinion on the economic toll that this is going to take? Because I think this is going to be, I think it's going to be really hard for the next 18 months because of the ripple effect that people aren't even talking about. I love macroeconomics and monetary policy. And it just, it, I'm a, I'm an internal optimist too. And I can't be here, Chris. Right. And so that's it's a tough scenario. Maybe first part of the question. Second part is for the leaders that are going to be dealing with this, what is your suggestion? So first, what do you what do you think is going on? Like, 
Well, it's it's kind of a, a perfect storm in a negative way. Uh, not only is this going on, but we have an, we're in an election cycle and uh, with a lot on the line on that election cycle. And so if anybody knows from a private equity perspective what happened when um, some of the policies that came in to be, you know, d- during the Obama administration, a lot of folks in private equity withdrew their money. And so you had trillions of dollars sitting on the sideline. If that were to happen again at the same time that we go into this uh, economic crisis in the next, uh, then I think it will have a compounding impact on the in a bad way on the economy. So to make a bad situation, a terrible situation, even even worse. And so, you know, it remains to be seen on that. I'm I'm certainly not for one side or the other. I, I hope that whoever's in office in January will make it appealing uh, for private equity to to keep their money in the game because that's really what will help this economy bounce back or our jobs. And so no matter what happens, um, that's what I'm hoping. That's what I'm hoping for. I'm an optimist as well. And I think that if the money stays in the market, it might only take us 12 to 24 months. If the money gets pulled, uh, I'm fearful it might take uh, quite a bit longer than that for the economy to be able to bounce back. So that's, it's unfortunate, but that's, that's kind of where I am. And like, I like, I think like you, I, I tend to be more of an optimist, but this is a toughie to feel optimistic about. Even, and that's kind of on the, the kind of the plumbing of the financial system too, that you just referred yeah. to, but the, uh, the challenge too, is the, the, the sheer amount of small businesses and the people that were living payroll to payroll as a small business right. owner. I just, Terrible. yeah, man, it's, it's we got to put the money to work. That's my number one thing. Put the num- money to work. If you're an entrepreneur, you know, if you can get your hands on money, uh, when we're done with this thing, and hopefully in a few months here, my this is what I'm telling everyone: put your money to work. Um, when you put money to work, you put the people to work, and people are our only way out of this. Um, yeah, they're going to reinvent this economy, uh, but we got to get them to work. So then, if you're an entrepreneur listening to this, how do what are your what are your suggestions from your 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 philosophy on the fulfillment and passion and the yeah. purpose and how do you what what would be your takeaways? So again, this goes back to a little bit of my um, entrepreneurship kind of philosophy. It's fourfold. Number one, solve a problem by employing people. That's number one. Number two, have a huge, a huge risk tolerance with money and have a very low, low risk tolerance for time. And this goes back to how we can jumpstart the economy is if you employ people, put them to work, even if it means that you have to sacrifice your lifestyle for right now, it will, it will pay off in the long run. So the third kind of philosophy as it relates uh, is, the, is going back to the age old, you gotta, you gotta be a hustler, you, you gotta get creative and you, you're gonna have to put in some sweat equity to figure your way out of this thing. That's another major uh, component. And that leads me to the final one, which is you've gotta, you've gotta stick with your growth mentality. You've got to be a grower, both of people and of money. Grit. Right. That's yeah. what's going to take it. Yeah. I mean, it's going to take grit, that amazing faith, grit. for grit and yep. faith, man. It's uh right. I the know. rewards will be there for those that do. Yep. I agree with that. Well, for the listeners that uh, really resonated with your messaging and stuff like that, where can they find you, your book, your website, all that kind of stuff? Absolutely. So website, I would uh, go ahead and have them go to alignleadthrive.com uh, or they can go to chrismaroff.com. Either one will get you some good information on entrepreneurship, most importantly on leadership, how to show up for people, how to love and serve them toward fulfillment. Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show. Very timely and it was exactly what I wanted. So hopefully the listeners enjoyed it too. Thanks for having me on, Ryan.
I hope you enjoyed that episode, and I have a couple big takeaways for you. One is that if you do not realize that your employees are as valuable as Chris had talked about, I truly believe what he says, that you can quadruple your EBITDA, have a competitive advantage like no one else if you do this right. The key is to make sure that you can afford to do this right. So I suggest that if you do not have absolute clarity on your numbers and a strategic plan that ties to value growth and how you can afford to invest in your people like Chris talked about, check out our Mastering Your Cash Flow video series. It's on our website, arcona.io. It's uh, we got a landing page that goes there. We got a couple big sections about how to get handle on your 13-week cash flow statement, how to revise your annual budget and forecasts, and then how to build value growth with the long term. So once you have clarity on your numbers, you can specifically identify where you're going to invest in your people so that way you can still afford it and you're not sacrificing potential bankruptcy or potential erosion of profits because you're doing it the wrong way. It's built into your plan and it's tied to employee growth, value growth, and the ability to have more options and freedom down the road. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and I look forward to seeing you next week.